Hi, I'm Adam Greenfield. I'm Associate Artistic Director here at Playwrights Horizons, and I'm fortunate enough to be sitting here with Craig Lucas. Uh, Craig, thank you so much for uh, talking to us. Uh, I guess I wanted to start by asking you a little bit about how you got into playwriting. Um, you were you began you were a poet before you were a playwright. Is that correct? I did study. Uh, Creative writing with some poets when I was at uh, Boston University. But I had written plays as a kid because I was a I was actually a child entertainer. Uh, and I performed at uh, <coughs> I performed at children's birthday parties and at hospitals and things like that. Uh, marionettes and magic <laughs> as a child. <laughs> oh. Um, so I wrote these little plays for the marionettes. And then uh, I had a professor at Boston University who would accept plays instead of papers. So like everyone else had to write these long, stupid academic things about, you know, Commedia dell'arte, and I just wrote little plays. I loved him. I don't know why he let me do that, but it was, it was a good thing. You weren't really a playwright. You were kind of an actor. And I was a creative studying writer and acting, and I had a double major. They let me do a double major because Anne Saxon was there, and George Starbuck, uh, and Helen Vendler. So I really had the benefit of like two degrees. Mm -hmm. Also, Howard Zinn was there, so I just lucked out. Um, yeah, I lucked out. And <coughs> you got to study with Anne Sexton, and as I, I mean, I've heard you describe her as like a mentor. Before. Well, she was really very encouraging, even though my poetry was probably not as good as anyone would have liked it to be. <laughs> so when I finally sent her a play, she was like, good news, <laughs> you're a playwright. <laughs> uh, she was just, she was terribly funny and uh, very alive and she, she socialized with us, you know. We would go drinking and she had us to her house and mm -hmm. it, was, it was a lot like having a mentor and she spotted a lot of things about me that I wasn't ready to hear or understand or accept. And uh, she was quite frank. I'm really a late bloomer. I didn't <coughs> have any idea how to be a grown-up at that point. So I couldn't take full advantage of everything that she offered me until mm. much later. And are there ways in which she influenced your writing, do you think? Well, I don't think this is unique to her, but she always would say, make it strange. <laughs> it was. A, I mean, I... I Remember being kind of unsurprised that you had had a relation, close relationship with Anne Sexton when I first learned that, because it seems like your your writing is so it is it is conversational as you're describing it, but it's also so essentialized at the same time. There's a real leanness to it that feels to me like it's written the way a poet is careful about the choice of words. And I've and I've in my experience of working with you, it seems like we know we're trying to ask large questions about how to adjust a scene or a moment in a play or to bring something out. You always find this way of doing it by adding 
one word in just the right spot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't, that's lovely to hear. I mean, I, I don't know what I'm doing ever, but, um, you know, I'm, I, I identified in a way with <coughs> my mentor because she had been a model and she took an adult education class and submitted some poems to Robert Lowell, whom she introduced me to. She said, this is Cal Lowell. And I said, hello, what do you do? Because <laughs> I knew nothing. Um, but, you know, it was her and Sylvia Plath in that class. And Anne Sexton had an amazing gift for vernacular spoken American diction. The poems are just busting in every direction um, with odd turns of blunt syntax and the other thing is that she was talking about things you weren't supposed to talk about in poems. So I think I lucked out that she was not in any way thrown by the sexuality of the stuff I was writing and she was encouraging even though it wasn't very good. And then, you know, I was naive enough, I would bring, this class, at, one of the things was to bring in poems that you liked, and I liked very traditional things, so I was bringing in poems by W.H. Auden and, <coughs> you know, Elizabeth Bishop, and everyone in the class was like, really? Because <laughs> <laughs> they were all really into Louis Simpson and stuff that was more psychologically dangerous well, than what like I was Well, it was like the bringing era in. of confessional it poetry. Was. And, I mean, Anne Sexton was the, kind of the, 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 Though the real pioneer of that. The, the, the person who broke the ice really was Lowell, you know. And mm -hmm. those, those poems in Lord Weary's Castle and, um, you know, uh, do you know the poem about <coughs> Colonel Shaw, the the one about uh, you know the the, the Revolutionary yes. War. It kind of goes back into the sort of the Civil Americans, War. Americans, yes, the, the like American psyche in the Civil War. Yeah, you know that just it it blew the top off of my head I when I read it. That. And Skunk Hour and and uh, actually this play has we've we've used quite a bit of the language from uh, one of the last poems Lowell wrote called Epilogue mm -hmm. from. Uh, his last book, his, his posthumous last volume. Uh, why not say what happened? Give each thing its rightful name. In fact, why not say what happened is a line that Astrid says in the play as she's setting up the story. Yes. And, it, and I think, if I'm remembering it right, in the script it's even in quotations. It is. Yeah. Between her and Ash, there's an understanding. They know that poem. But we ultimately felt that it wasn't important that the audience be in on some sort of literary allusion. Um, some of your earlier plays where it was the first time that at least I encountered this kind of overlapping dialogue and the way you would sort of lay it out on the, on the page. I had never seen something like that before. And I guess I should also um, sort of mention that I, you know, I grew up in, in Costa Mesa, 
California when you were the pl player in residence at South Coast Rep. And so I saw all those um, early productions of uh, Blue Window and Reckless and uh, Prelude to a Kiss, and I saw Marry Me a Little. <laughs> um, and uh, I've always, I think I've always been a little shy about saying it, but, but in a lot of ways those were the, the theatrical experiences that I had that, that made me want to do theater at all. And, and it was through by going to uh, South Coast Rep and, and, and sort of un and seeing that somebody had read those plays and chosen those plays and, and put those plays on the stage. I really owe all of that to Jerry Patch. Yeah, and I was going to say Jerry Patch was, was the person who made me understand that there was such a thing as a literary department. And, and then John Glore, you know, so those two gentlemen were my champions and they guided me through those first productions. Mm -hmm. um, but I had already seen a couple of plays by Lanford Wilson and by uh, Maria Irene Fornes where the overlapping had been used as a kind of um, poetic device, you know, mm -hmm. um, and I was enthralled by the use of sound in Robert Altman's movies mm -hmm. where the c camera would move through a crowded, uh, you know, complicated sequence, you know, that operating sequence in MASH where the camera's <laughs> moving, you know, and, and the, Think and, about and, that and all the time. I don't know how many mics he had going or how it was edited, the sound editing was done, but it's so beautifully eloquent and symphonic and, um, and Lanford's plays and, and Forness's plays uh, revealed to me that there was a way to, to use the stage that was not uh, simply what we'd seen the Lunts do, you know, mm -hmm. or not to in any way denigrate what the Lunts were doing. It just was a, a different way of representing reality. Mm -hmm. And it was also a, a different way of, a different kind of way of representing, of showing action in a play that I, that I had encountered. I mean, granted, I was a teenager, so I, I, my, my exposure to, to plays at the time was a lot more limited, but I remember being struck how when I saw Blue Window, and I was probably too young to see it, to be honest. Um, my parents sometimes brought me to see plays that I shouldn't have seen. Mine, too. Well, they yeah. would bring me to see <laughs> these things, and my father in the middle would go, let's get out of here! <laughs> Yeah, no, my, my parents brought me to see uh, Wally Sean's play, Ant Anna and Lemon, when I was a kid. And I remember at the time thinking, my brain hurts. I'm too young to be watching this. Uh -huh. um, but anyway, with Blue Window, it felt to me like uh, it's so the structure of it is, is a group of people in separate places before the party, uh, a party, and then, there's a, and then there's a scene where they're all at this party, and then the third movement of it is everyone back in separate spaces after the party. And it was a kind of portrait of loneliness and despair uh, in a in contemporary, contemporary urban world that I hadn't really felt communicated before, um, at least to me at that time. And uh, what was so striking about it was that it was also, there's also so much noise happening in it as well. Um, well, I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, <laughs> because I didn't go to playwriting school. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, Anne recommended me to Yale. <coughs> and I applied as a playwright, and I got in. Mm -hmm. And then she said, don't go. Did you say, why? Well, yeah. And it was <laughs> like, she said, you won't do well. You're uh, combative. 
and anti-authoritarian, and you're <laughs> and you're not grown up yet, so you're not going to do well there. You're going to think you're bad, and I don't think you should go. I think you should go to New York, and you should find your own way. And of course, my parents were usually relieved <laughs> because they didn't want to have to pay for Yale. <laughs> um, it had cost enough to send me to BU, and my parents didn't have any money. They died paying off my college loans, um, and, and me paying off the college loans. Um, so I took her advice, and I came to New York, and I started getting work as a singer. I wasn't much of an actor, but I had a big, bright voice. Uh, so I got Broadway credits singing in the chorus, and that's the decade in which I taught myself to write. So I didn't know anything about dramaturgy, really, except what I had intuited from plays that I liked and, and going to the theater and imagining. And I had no idea how to tell a story. I didn't know what a story was made of. I really wrote Reckless because I thought, well, you cannot write another play where seven people sit around and talk at a cocktail party for an hour. You can't do that. People will get very tired of that. <laughs> um, and I had a restless sense that every play had to be a completely different set of rules, a different game. Mm-hmm. After Haley to Kiss, every review of every play I wrote after that was like, why isn't it <laughs> have a happy ending? It's supposed <laughs> to be have a happy, uplifting ending. Why did you, why is this upsetting or dark or, you know, it was like, and it's like a weird trap. Right. You know, um, but I knew enough to know that since I didn't know what I was doing when I began, I'd better continue not knowing what I'm doing. Right. Because if I were to try to write based on what I had learned from the last play, then I think I would have um, calcified and, and in some way probably died as, mm-hmm. a, as an artist. So I always try to move into an area where I know that I'm not equipped, <laughs> not properly equipped to do the job. Yeah. To go back to sort of Blue Window and seeing your early works, I mean, one of the things that I was struck by when I read I Was Most Alive With You for the first time, um, which was a few was years ago now, yeah. um, was that it felt in a lot of ways I don't uh, like an apotheosis, and I and I, I use that word reluctantly because it makes it seem like you've reached like an endpoint. But I don't with that I don't mean that. It just means that like like there's been a lot of um, discussions about people and uh, our experiences as human beings and how we deal with suffering in particular that have run through your plays for for decades really, and that the conversation that's happening about our experiences in I Was Most Alive With You feels to me like it's kind of found a new clarity of vision or uh, there's a kind of passing through into a, a, a wisdom that, um, that I think some of, some, uh, some of your earlier plays I think end with a point of struggle. Yes. And this feels like it's ending with a point of, of, um, of discovery or, or, or revelation. I feel about this, looking at it, that it, I, I can't believe I had anything to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I watched it the other night, and, and p- partly because I didn't direct it, and it's been so beautifully directed by uh, Tyne Raffaelli. Um, but also, you know, I kind of cleaned up my act. I. I stopped living like a graduate student, and I stopped careening around in the world, and I began to live intentionally in a way that I hadn't before, which I think has made it possible for me to take my time, speak more clearly, 
pull away the chaos. A lot of the the work that I've made has has, has really been about the chaos of, of living and the mess of living. And I I think it's taken me a long time to grow up and a long time to know how to live and to be respectful of other people and to treat them properly and myself properly. And a lot of things that the other plays were filled with. I, I was having a conversation with my husband about our his work and my work, and I realized that m the majority of the plays that I've written, and, and movies as well, are about people impersonating someone else or pretending to be someone they're not. And that's not that doesn't occur anywhere in this play. That's true. That's that's in Reckless. Uh, well, there's really like 12 of them that, wow. that, uh, that have that. Yeah, Someone is lying or hiding something important and often masquerading as someone that they're not. And that's like, I don't know what that's about. I don't know mm -hmm. why I was writing that for so long. I must have felt like a completely inauthentic person for some reason. But I don't feel like an inauthentic person anymore, and I don't feel the need to tell that story anymore. Um, also, all, most of my plays have a, an element of abandonment, and though there is abandonment in I Was Most Alive With You. It does feel different to me, and I'm really, I would love to write, I'd actually like to write some simple plays <laughs> where just two people are talking. <laughs> right. <laughs> because my, I'm always hearing your play so complicated. And I don't set out to do that. I right. don't set out to be complicated. I set out to make uh, something that feels alive, lived in, that's all. Right. But on one hand, you could say that they're complicated. On the other hand, they're they're ambitious and painted on a really large canvas, which I think, especially at a time when uh, when we're so dominated by realism as a style in this in this particular era, I find myself so so grateful for the ways in which your plays blur that line. I'm actually thinking about um, something that Madeline George once said, which I which has stuck with me. She said, "When did it all become about Chekhov and not about Shakespeare?" Well, and that's the thing that I'm so fascinated by, that we have this great tradition of theatrical work that is part church service or worship or ceremony or pageant. I mean, Ben Johnson wrote pageants, and they're very strange. They have <laughs> songs in them, and people come out and declaim, and certainly Sophocles you know, those are crazy plays. The chorus came out in like dressed as peasants and they sang folk songs. They <laughs> sang like, you know, well, I think it's not gonna go well for <laughs> you know, I think Oedipus is in trouble. <laughs> and they sang it. It's kooky, right? And Shakespeare's crazy. those plays are crazy, some of them, mm -hmm. the way they're put together. They don't, yeah, if Cymbeline, the <laughs> things that happen in Cymbeline, Cymbeline would, would not make it past the first reader at a, at, a, at, a, at a theater these days. Yes, that's what's so strange. And it, it, really, it really is changing because I feel like there are so many writers now who are willing mm -hmm. to just throw it up against the wall and see what will stick and to try, you know, moving. I mean, f look at Fairview. I mean, my God, you know, or look at Adam Rapp's new play. Yeah. Um, the, the level of trust in language and poetry and simplicity and mystery. Um, it's a very actually lively and beautiful time for the American theater. Mm -hmm. I, I couldn't be more in optimistic about it. Yeah, I agree. But, and I think that, and I, but I, I look at the, 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 the 
whole, whole anthology of plays that you've written, and I and I can point, I can draw a direct line between things that you've written and the way they've impacted um, well, writers, writers who are taking risks. I mean, I just feel like you know my life is about making sure that the car isn't towed. So <laughs> I just can't imagine that anything had any effect on anyone. That's very nice to hear, but. Um, Really, what's always interesting is what's next. You you talk about wanting always looking for what the next thing was. How how did you come across the Book of Job, and can you talk about how you be grew, grew the ambition to write a play that um, is fully accessible by hearing and deaf audiences at the same time, and how you found Russell Harvard and and sort of the confluence of all of these things that created this. Um, really unique production. Some disparate things happened. I met a man, Dr. Howard Weiner, and he suggested that I read the wisdom books in the Old Testament. So I read, I read Job, and it was only because I had g gotten sober that I was able to even consider anything as crazy as the book of Job. And I'd seen Russell in a movie, and he was arresting in it, and I was really keen on finding out more about him. And then when he did Tribes here, my, you know, my head fell off. It was such mm -hmm. great acting. And uh, so I approached him and told him I was going to write a play for him, and he said, who are you? <laughs> and, um, but it was only when we started workshopping the play up in Boston, and I met Sabrina Dennison, that, um, the idea of making every performance accessible to hearing and deaf audiences was proposed. Uh, and I was excited by that, but I didn't know how to do it. And having done this, I kind of want every play to be fully accessible. But you know what, the other thing it would be fun to do would be to like a rehearsal play with a hearing cast and a deaf cast and do alternate evenings. Mm -hmm. Do some performances that are exclusively signed some that are exclusively spoken, and then some that are both. Mm -hmm. It's very fun being in the house when there are so many deaf audience members. Um, they get things mm -hmm. in, uh, in the play that, that a hearing audience generally won't apprehend, mm -hmm. and the laughs come at different moments, which I love. Mm -hmm. and well, the more I watch it, the more it feels I've watched it many times now, and my attention has started to go to just watching the the, 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 shadow, the ASL cast, and it feels like now the the downstairs cast um, are the ones who are interpreting the Play. sign performances for me, as opposed to uh, where when I first started watching it, it was um, them interpreting the, right. the the hearing actor cast right. for a deaf audience. Um, so that's a really amazing thing. To I watch would love happen. to see the play performed by the seven uh, signing actors. Mm -hmm. When I first read the play, I all another thought I had was, it, I can't, I, it's amazing that Craig f came across the Book of Job and wanted to write a play using the Book of Job because it's. I had this immediate thought of. Um, that was just how did it, it took him so long to get there <coughs> because in some ways it occurred to me that you've always it makes it makes perfect sense because in a lot of ways you have you know I was thinking about the dying gall in which the suffering of mm -hmm. these characters these, these characters are being tortured I mean they're being tortured at the hands of each other I guess my, my point in bringing up the guy the dying gall is that 
whereas that is a play where terrible injustices are, are enacted upon the characters and the play winds up with essentially a pile of bodies on stage. Whereas in I Was Most Alive With You, terrible injustices are enacted upon the characters and instead of, the wh while the possibility of, of a, a pile up of death and des destruction at the end of the play is looms very largely in the story. It hasn't happened. It doesn't, it hasn't happened and the point is to say, okay, it is, it is not the struggle against despair that we're leaving them with, it's, it's, it's the struggle to live with despair or it's the struggle to accept it as, as fact. And I guess I wonder if, if that feels specific just, just to the play to you or, or do you feel like you've changed in ways and oh that no, the, the way that the play, the dif that difference in the way the play deals with suffering is a, it reflects a, a way in which you live your life differently. I, I don't want to write any more plays where people fall off the, uh, you know, where the map ends, you know, in the old, you know, the maps was like dragons and mermaids and then <laughs> nothing. You know, I don't want to go there anymore mm -hmm. because um, I lost so many people who didn't want to go. Everyone I know died. Mm -hmm. I will never not be um, traumatized. Mm -hmm. I will always be someone who is sort of floating on a sea of deep rage. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't make my choices based on it anymore, though I did for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I can't live in that place anymore. I, I, this fierce desire to live and, and to keep engaging with the world has been very hard won for me. Mm -hmm. So I don't think despair is quite valid dramatically. I think peop watching people struggle against it is, is mm -hmm. valid, but I do suppose I'm more hopeful. Do you feel like the, f the characters in this play, and, and also in the last play that we did, a Player to Horizons, uh, Prayer for My Enemy, there's uh, a family who, who at the hands of uh, an otherwise friendly neighbor, <laughs> uh, experience a great loss, um, and they, somehow take this leap of faith that is necessary in order to find forgiveness for her and even to be able to pray for her. And um, up to that point, I didn't really ever see like a characters who had a p like faith in particular in your plays. And this play in, 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 um, in I Was Alive With You, faith plays a huge role in it. And I, it makes me wonder if you, if you have, if, if, if if you have found faith in your life that you didn't have prior, and do your, does your work and the way your work has evolved reflect that? It seems like nature took a long time to evolve a, a species that could conceive uh, of time beyond itself and of larger thoughts, you know, and so I'm, I'm hopeful about the capacity of cooperation. I think when you get 200 people in a room in the dark and they all agree to stop talking <laughs> more or less <laughs> and face in the same yeah. direction, that's like a big triumph. The characters in this 
play, like, you know, there's this beautiful moment where Russell Harvard um, prays, uh, prays for his fellow man, prays for his own ability to, to, to help his fellow man. Um, it's an aspiration for himself. Do you pray? I do. I read an ancient thing called The Cloud of Unknowing. And it's about prayer as a means to listen within. That there's no guarantee that there's any sentient something out there that's listening to you and me in the night when we're thinking, <laughs> you know, our terrible thoughts. <laughs> I hope not. But we can actually get quiet enough that we can hear something inside that is bigger and better than our first instinct. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that prayer is an opportunity to quiet down all the noise. When we're doing our very best, we are still going to get slammed. Mm -hmm. And the sense of injustice is so terrible. I'm so grateful to the people who stuck around and were willing to continue holding my hand and, uh, you know, this theater. Um, this very this institution has been a mainstay for me and there is a great freedom in putting down the rock of of having to figure out what god is up to even if he's a malevolent being having a bet with his <laughs> buddy <laughs> at your expense mm -hmm. i think there are better things to do with our time than police others um, well, I think that seems like a good place to conclude our, our conversation. Thank you so much, Craig, for talking to me. I love talking to you. And um, uh, thank you all so much for watching. I hope that you all come join us at I Was Most Alive With You at Playwrights Horizons.